You're listening to Grace Geltman and Weld on the Hammer Factor. Take it away, boys. Okay, welcome to Hammer Factor, episode 47. My name is John Grace, your show producer. And on the show today, I have North Fork champion, poker champion, Outdoor Alliance policy champion, and back on the little white, all healing up, ready to rock, Lewis Geltman. Morning. Not on the show is Mr. John Weld. John Weld is on a secret mission. Maybe he'll fill us in on that at some point, but he couldn't make it to the show today, and he'll probably be upset with us because we're doing the show without him. I have to say, it kind of hurt my feelings a little bit that you guys proceeded without me last week, and I I have some guilt that I'm doing the same thing to Weld. (laughs) John either lucked out or he's going to be bitter because we're going to have a lot of Whitewater SUP on this show because we have our special guest uh, this episode, Dan Gavere. And if you don't know Dan, well, Dan is probably one of the most iconic figures in whitewater, both kayaking and SUP. He's been a professional mountain biker, professional snowboarder, professional kayaker, currently a professional stand-up paddleboarder. He's a professional lifestyler. So it'll be super interesting to talk to him. But before we get into all that, we got to start with our top of the show sponsor, This episode of The Hammer Factor is brought to you by CKS Main Street in BV, Colorado, the premier paddling shop in the Arkansas Valley. CKS will once again be hosting Paddlefest Memorial Day weekend, May 25th through the 28th. This weekend-long event is the best way to kick off the paddling season in the Arkansas Valley. We have a massive selection of used gear at our swap, a week-long sale with 15% off everything in store, demos of our newest 2018 boats, and a fleet of reps from all our major vendors on the floor to answer questions. You can even find Weld on the floor to discuss the finer points of paddle length and offset. We also have a host of amazing events open to the public, such as our long-standing freestyle competition, our third annual numbers race, where you can compete against friends and pros alike. In addition to these events, there is also a selection of clinics to help you improve everything from your most basic kayaking skills to advanced river running and freestyle technique. Each night, there's an offering of live music as well as local food and beverage vendors to celebrate the after paddle in style. Uh, The website is live, so you can see the schedule and register for the events at ckspaddlefest.com. So mark your calendars for May 25th through the 28th in beautiful Buena Vista, Colorado. And then there's some annunciations there that the guys at CKS put in me. Put in there for me because I'm so bad at pronouncing things. But <laughs> there is, uh, you know, talking about paddle offset and whatnot. Um, you know, Weld will probably be there to discuss the finer points of paddle offset. I have been getting now that spring's coming on and everybody's paddling, so many compliments on people changing their paddle and going to a longer paddle. Dude, Betty. Been out there every morning with this 65 degree offset, loving life. I just got my girlfriend a new paddle, and I'm going to read you this text message she sent me after she just took it out for the first rip. Oh, please do. Best paddle ever. I love it. I just had 17 paddle orgasms and want to go again. I'm never paddling <laughs> less than a 45 again. <laughs> Not that I want to justify the months of hammer factor drama, but anyone who says less offset than 45 is better has either never paddled one or is a one armed slug. <laughs> <laughs> did you write that did she really send you that 
she really sent me that. Oh, that is awesome. Yeah, so I, I don't know if I got orgasm talk, but I definitely had several people tell me, you know what? I got a longer paddle. I changed my offset. It's been for the better. Yeah, man. I think we're really making a difference. I think, and, and you can go to CKS and try for yourself at Paddle Fest. So there we go. Super excited about this Dan Gavir interview. We'll get him on in just a little bit. Um, but first, let's get into our veggies. Um, <laughs> we had, uh, we had a couple people kind of write in last week, um, maybe saying to leave, leave some of this, uh, policy stuff out of the show, but. I oh, think- that was one guy who loves the NRA. Let's not get carried away. <laughs> I, I think we know that's not going to happen, but one thing I'm sure you have some other stuff in the whole policy, the outdoor Alliance, uh, policy realm that, that you live and work in, but here's a hat tip to Jake Rish. He asked, did you get an invite to be on this panel, Lewis? And basically, there's an article in the uh, Medium that we'll link to in the show notes. And basically, there is an outdoor recreation committee that Zinke has put together to figure out ways to privatize things within the public park, within uh, the national parks. Did you get a chance to look at this, Lewis? What's your opinion on this? And did you get invited? I did not read this. We had some conversations about being a part of this panel and we didn't really push it super hard for a variety of reasons, but uh, department of interior has put together this like recreation advisory group and then they've stacked it with like the people on the advisory group are folks from the RV industry who want to see, you know, like Wi-Fi in the national parks or Wi-Fi in campgrounds is like a big issue and like more maintenance of these super developed campgrounds, which is, I mean, that's fine, but like, that's not really what, you know, we're about what our people listening to the hammer factor are probably about for the most part. Um, a bunch of, uh, a bunch of other folks on this panel are like, like concessionaires, like the folks like Aramark and, I don't know, the people who like run the hotels in Yosemite and things like that. Um, our buddies, we, after we spent however long that was talking about whether or not we should be boycotting Vista Outdoors, manufacturer of Camelback and Hero and Bell, but also manufacturers of AR-15 assault rifles and huge funders of the NRA. They're, uh, one of their executives is on this advisory group. Um, it's just like, I don't know. I mean, it's just indicative of where, where the priorities of this administration are. I think it's like, you know, private public lands are meant to generate money, whether it's from mining coal or pumping through RVs or raising the entrance fees to the parks. And, you know, their, their values just aren't reflective of our values. I mean, I don't know how, I mean, I think this is just, you know, is this advisory committee the be all end all, like, is it super, essential like no but it's just one more data point about how these guys think about public lands and what it's about and then their view of this stuff is not our view and it's you know don't forget it and so i mean this idea of of, of selling concession stands and why you know pay by the hour wi-fi and all the things that are mentioned in this in this article are it are these new things? I've just never heard of this as being a part of national parks ever in my life. Is this a totally new thing? This kind of privatization of parts of the park or have you um, ever heard of this? I'm not, I feel like 
we do much more work with like the forest service than work on the national parks, but there's, I mean, I say we, we, we definitely do work on the national park stuff and it's super important for the climbers. They have a lot of really important resources in national parks. Um, but, and I, I'm not, I'm not like the greatest resource on the history of the park service, but there was this thing like back in the sixties called a uh, mission 50, I think it was called where they put this big emphasis on making the national park super drivable and having lodges and like, like a lot of emphasis on developed infrastructure. And I, I feel like you just sort of like, do you feel like you just sort of feel that in the national parks? Like, I mean, just speaking personally, like, I mean, I know that this national parks and maintenance backlog is, is real and it's a big deal, but then you like drive in the national parks and it's like roads that you could roller skate on. And, you know, it's just like so much development and it's like, I, I it would be interesting to me just as a matter of personal interest to like kind of tease out how much of this is really about taking care of the public lands and how much of it is about taking care of really development intensive tourist infrastructure. Oh. But you know, there are people, I mean, it's important that people have opportunities to go out and experience public lands in a variety of different ways and develop an affinity and a sense of common ownership of these places and, you know, become advocates. And it's cool that there's a variety of different ways to experience these places, but it's just like, I mean, to me, the idea that you're going to put together an, a, a recreation advisory group for public lands and you're not going to have a single representative of human powered outdoor recreation, like, like no hikers, you know, like, I mean, no hikers, like give me a break, man. Hmm. I mean, if you look at like the outdoor industry associations participation numbers, I mean, it's something like, like a hundred million Americans who, you know, participate in some form of human powered outdoor recreation on public lands. Like, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's perplexing at best, you know? Yeah. Well, getting back to your point, I sort of feel, I can kind of feel that like I can roll into the parks and feel like sometimes they're just a little overproduced. Don't you, like, don't you just, sense. don't you just feel like, like when you're on the national forest or like on BLM land that you're like more into your place where like nobody's gonna, no, nobody's gonna bother you and you can kind of just experience nature as it is without, you know, it's like, I don't need like an interpretive display. I need like white water. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I need an undisturbed landscape. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. Well, it's an interesting article. I'll link to it here in the show notes. Um, there's also, and you know, it kind of, I'll kind of back it up with this committee that Zinke's putting together and pretty much the way all of Zinke's proposals outside of obviously the bear's ears thing kind of got shot down in Congress. Um, that'll all be linked to in the show notes. So, so tell me about these comments, this, this on the rezoning here, Lewis, that you were kind of talking about. Oh, uh, yeah. I just mentioned to you that we were, uh, putting together comments this week for the management plans for bear's ears and grand staircase Escalante there, you know, every nat, every, national monument, every national park, every national forest, every sort of unit of public lands has a, a management plan and they're creating management plans now for the reduced Grand Staircase Escalante and Bears Ears National Monuments. And we have to submit comments this week or I guess by next week on 
you know, just like what we want to see reflected in those management plans. And it's a little bit, it's a little bit tricky because we definitely are still emphasizing that what they've done here is illegal and they shouldn't be creating management plans while the legality of those reductions are still being litigated. So, but we can't just like refuse to participate, you know, like if, if ultimately these, uh, reductions stand, we still, it's still important that, you know, our interests, that our voices is a part of this process for developing management plans for these places. So be putting that stuff together in the next week or so. Hmm. And so what is that? I'm sure we'll put something out when we do that. What's that look like when you put it in those comments? Is it like a one page document? Do you like read, you know, do like site research from past things? It depends. I mean, it depends on like what stage the, the comment is at. Like there's multiple kind of opportunities to, put in input so this is scoping so they're looking for like really high level comments on what these management plans should look like so just you know for bears ears in particular pointing out that you know rock climbing is a you know super super important landscape on these uh these landscapes and that that's a valid use that needs to you know not be regulated away or making sure that you know there's sufficient infrastructure to accommodate climbers there and you know maintain like sanitary conditions basically like if there are places where you know heaps of people are um camping or whatever just like stuff like that gotcha Hmm. well super interesting you'll have to let us know about that does that go out in the spam email or my secret email that i get from the oh probably probably both (laughs) Uh, just kidding. Get on that email. There's all kinds of great stuff that Lewis pumps out from the Outdoor Alliance. Go to OutdoorAlliance.org. Sign up for that email address. That is the best way, second only to the Hammer Factor, to stay up to date on policy that can affect you. Um, <laughs> moving on to a little listener mail. <clears throat> a couple things here with the listener mail. Number one, this was our lowest response. I looked back that we have gotten since episode seven episode seven is back when it was just like a few crickets listening to us and like our parents (laughs) so so i don't know what it was obviously weed and whitewater um was not comment worthy but we did get um some good comments here this one comes from michael gallimore longtime listener he says oh hang on before i get into michael's email so what we're going to do from now on with listener mail and we're going to try this, is I will have a Google voice number. And I'll put that in. I'll edit it in right now, whatever that number is, to this part of the show. And instead of writing in, you can still write in. That's, that's totally fine. But if you want to, you can just call that voice number and leave a message. And then we'll play that on the show. Because I listen to myself stumbling through these listener mails. And it's just like, I'm just embarrassing myself. So... Anyway. We're just gradu- we're like gradually turning into full on sports talk radio. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so, so leave us a message on that number. I'll have that ready for you. But for now, this comes in from Michael Gallimore. Michael says, "Thank you all for addressing the fact that sometimes you really do have to in quotes eat your vegetables. The only people who can afford to not be political are the ones whose rights are not being threatened. If you like kayaking and recreation on public lands, this is an issue that will never go away." 
West Virginia is a microchasm for the rest of the country where pristine environments and beautiful rivers are always at the risk of the extractive resource industry. We live it every day. Thank you, Lewis and the Hammer Factor, for always keeping us in the know. Man, thank you, Michael Gallimore. I really appreciate that. I couldn't agree more, man. I, uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm sure it comes across that way on its own, but this stuff matters to me a lot, and I think it matters a lot to all of us. So let's be in it together and get her done. Yeah. yeah. Well said, Michael. Thanks for that um, email. Uh, moving down the list here, this comes from uh, Kovi Bach. B-A-A-C-K, Kovi Bach. Uh, Kovi says, it was good to hear the cannabis talk. I will be representing a cannabis company this year as well. Most sought after sponsorship in kayaking. <laughs> it's going to be. <laughs> um, all right, this comes from Rico420. Uh, Rico420 says, Dear Hammer Factor, I really enjoyed listening to episode 46 and getting all the gang's take on the issues presented by pot and kayaking. It was interesting to hear how some of the panel viewed the devil's lettuce as a performance enhancer while others saw it as a performance inhibitor. I feel like this disconnect is reflected across the broader, broader community of kayakers and that we as the Hammer Factor community have the perfect platform to solve this problem once and for all. I think that everyone who listens to the, sh to the show should be challenged to kayak their favorite river and sup five miles of flat water into a headwind back-to-back -back two times, once sober and once balls to the wall stoned. After each attempt, they will fill out a detailed questionnaire rating aspects of their experience and how the jazz cabbage, in quotes, affected them. I'm currently speaking with several MDs to gain insight for this questionnaire. This will give us more data regarding the effects of marijuana than any other study to date and help the Hammer Factor gain traction in the medical news community, which I'm sure will help out Grace's pocketbook. Anyhow, I've got the brilliant idea. You guys have got the means to make it happen. Let's make some magic, boys. We owe it to ourselves <laughs> and the Whitewater community at large. <laughs> Just out here conducting medical experiments <laughs> exactly that's all. Sounds like a great idea yeah. what are you doing today oh, i gotta go conduct some research baby hang on i'll be home later <laughs> now you know i just uh you know i was uh i thought there'd be more comments i think it's more of a non-issue than we made it out to be on the show um last issue but i really am surprised at that right there those two messages were the only ones we got in regards to uh weed and whitewater yeah, maybe people are getting sick of us, man. This seems to – I really thought if the NRA hadn't riled people up talking about weed wood, <laughs> maybe it's just that we're the, the definitive resource on all this stuff and there's nothing to argue with. Oh, <laughs> uh, Okay, so this one comes at us from Anonymous, okay? Um and this kind of goes back a couple issues to our risk and whitewater show. Um, this comes from anonymous. Um, I'd, I'd start uh, to start. I'd like to remain anonymous. If this is used on the air, I'll also do my best to keep this brief. Thanks for the re recent episode regarding the most recent river deaths as a Seattle boater. The loss of Sam hit us all very hard. With that said, I'd like to address something in regards to how we deal with river accidents. As a culture community sport, when these accidents happen, we don't do a good job of analyzing the accident. If you look to the mountaineering, rock climbing, backcountry, ski world, 
When there is death or even an accident that leads to injury, they do a much better job of doing a forensic analysis of what happened that led to the accident. He's got some links below. I'll put those in the show notes. They look at the environmental factors, decisions decisions made, heuristic traps that lead to the incidents, um, etc. I've noticed that when something like a death happens on the river, people don't want to talk about these kinds of details. It's almost as if by talking about the details, we'll be speaking poorly of the dead. That is to say out loud that, for example, that the water was high, they put on at 1 p.m. in December, and that there were only a group of two is to admit that they might have made poor decisions that led to the incident. After Sam's death, the only time someone would mention the water was very high, 900 CFS or higher, is in hushed tones and in private company. In Whitewater, we learn by doing, but there is a place for thoughtful reflection in regards to decision. Additionally, in this age of pushing the water level up on familiar runs by admitting that it's possible that something like high water is a risk factor, it would force us to look at our own decisions. Not to put you all on, not to put you all on blast, but this was even apparent in the episode. Lots of talk about risks, personal choices, and the like, but not really asking the hard questions about what are the events that led to these things. If the climbing and backcountry world can do this, why can't we? I could expand on this, but for the sake of brevity, I'll stop there. Thanks for providing quality entertainment to the whitewater world, and keep up the good work. May you be blessed with many sponsors. Also, I recognize my hypocrisy in wishing to remain anonymous in light of my statements. Uh, Mr. Anonymous, we'll keep keep that anonymous. Um, there's some points there. What what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I I agree that there's a place for you know sort of a technical analysis of you know what happened in various accidents. Um, you know, I, I I don't think that anybody is pretending that high water isn't a risk factor in any situation at all. Uh, I think, you know, when we were talking about it, you know, I, I, I agree with everything he's saying. I mean, I think that there is a, an element of people wanting to be respectful and not second guessing what happened because it's, you know, that's obviously really hard on, you know, the people who are there and it's a really small community, but there probably is something to learn from all of these, you know, these accidents. But I mean, I think at the same time, I think part of what we were kind of getting at in our conversation was just that, you know, all you can really, I don't want to say all you can do, but to say that we can analyze these problems away, I think is being disingenuous. And I think that sometimes there's, there are people who sort of find solace or find uh, justification for their own decisions by you know, rigorously analyzing something that happened to someone else and saying, well, I, you know, I don't do that or I'm not going to do that. And that's why nothing's going to, going to happen to me. And I think that a lot of what we were trying to get at was the, you know, that that's a little bit of a fallacy and it's like, all you can really do is, you know, make the best decisions that you possibly can, you know, really commit yourself to looking out for your friends and I think that we maybe just sort of let that part of the conversation slide and focused much more on the sort of philosophical, why are we doing this aspect of risk? Because I think that 
you know, maybe, and maybe that's doing a disservice to our listeners, but maybe for, you know, you and me and Weld, it's like, we've been through this so many times now and lost so many friends that, you know, I don't think any of us are under any illusions that by, you know, rigorously analyzing every accident, we're going to make this, this activity totally 100% safe for ourselves. And so, you know, maybe that's where our conversation landed a little bit more than it should have. Cause mm-hmm. I mean, I think that there is, you know, there's things to learn for sure. But at the end of the day, you know, running really hard class five at really hard water, high water and doing the things that people like to do to push the sport is, is dangerous. And all you can really do is mitigate that risk. And it's about deciding what your, what your comfort level is with that to some degree. Yep. Anonymous has got great points, but I have to agree with you on this is that if, 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 if you mitigate too much, you definitely got to mitigate your risk. You got to get your risk to where you feel comfortable. But if you took all the risk out of whitewater and a lot of, and a lot of things in life, not just whitewater, it's certain you probably wouldn't do it or it certainly wouldn't be as much fun or it wouldn't draw you, you know? Right. And it's like, that's the thing about, you know, like high water as a risk factor is it's like, it is unquestionably a risk factor. Like there is no doubt about that. And I think that anybody who's really pushing that game is acutely aware of that. But that also has a real, real appeal to it. You know, it's exactly. A pretty, exactly. Pretty compelling thing to do. Exactly. And you know, another thing I want to add before we move on here in Anonymous's letter is that um, oftentimes it's at this point when you start breaking down all of those things. But right when it happens, you're just not ready for that. Does that make sense? So, like with an accident. Sorry, you cut out. A lot of times it's like when it, after the when t- a little bit of time has passed since the accident, then you can start breaking down all of those things more and getting into them. But in that the, those initial weeks or time right after the accident, that's not just really where your brain is going, you know. So yeah, and I agree that there is very much a dynamic of not do like overly doing that in this sport that people are very attuned to not second guessing people who've just been a part of something really painful. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, I, I think that the AW accident reports do a good job and I'm, you know, I'm sure that there's always room for improvement on that stuff. And I, you know, I also think that, you know, first like an organization like AW, if somebody were, you know, interested in helping taking this kind of accident analysis piece in a, in a sensitive way to a, more uh robust level i'm sure that there would be appetite at you know aw or john talked about doing this on site zed a couple episodes back i mean i think that there's a place for it but it's just yeah i mean i I think there's a place for it well there's some great points here there's some great links in the show notes um from some avalanche um, websites and the american um, alpine club um, about some accidents. OA member. OA member. Yep. There you go. And, uh, definitely without a doubt, these things should be looked at. Um, and I think as time passes from an accident, I think they are dissected a little more than, you know, cause there is a level of placing fault on the person, which 
just doesn't feel right when you're in a state of mourning. Um, moving on from that, Simon Wyndham. Okay, so we decide, he says, uh, you wanted to know if there were any companies that make predominantly just whitewater boats without having to make cooler boxers, cooler boxes, etc. Okay, Piranha, Blistic, though God knows how they are still going, Waka, Zet, Spade. Uh, next paragraph. The bigger question is why boaters are so tight when it comes to buying a boat. The same people who grumble about the price of boats, even though they should be higher than they are, are often the same guys who will drop $3,000 on a mountain bike or road bike without a second thought. Um, first question. I think Piranhas had several different kinds of boats other than just whitewater. Blistic is no longer in business. Walka bought their molds. So... Um, I don't know much about Zet and Spay, but I know that they have kind of pretty much just started out to as far and as... And they're in Europe. And, and they're in Europe. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, why people are so hesitant, why people don't value a kayak like they would value their mountain bike or be willing to spend the money on there. That's a tricky one. That's a trick one, I guess, because you can get them cheaper. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, what's your thoughts on that? What, are you personally, is it harder for you to spend 1500 bucks on a kayak or 3000 bucks on a new mountain bike? Here's the thing. It's really important to me as a kayaker that you know how cool I am. And for that to happen, I need to be sponsored and be getting things for free. And so if I have to pay for something, then that's an acknowledgement from that company that I'm not that cool. And so it's really important for me that you know that people running kayak companies think that I'm really cool. So I need free boats or at least a big discount because my ego demands it. That's one way to put it. But why, does it people's, why don't people's egos in mountain bikes trick, kick in like that? I don't know. I don't, Maybe I, it's just kayakers are tremendous egotists, and we're. <laughs> I, I don't know. Maybe it's because you look at a mountain bike with all its intricately machined parts, and you look at a boat that's just kind of a rolled and molded piece of plastic. But still, I mean, he's got a really good point there. I know a lot of people who complain who will who will buy a crack shell and mold it together, and own a. $20,000 truck and a $5,000 mountain bike. I mean, there is There's something like, there. There is some kind of weird cultural thing that seems specific to kayaking that people are cheap. And it's like, I don't know where that comes from, but it seems like it's just somehow become ingrained in the, the culture of the sport that like not spending money on things is cool. I agree. I think that's, exactly I don't, I don't know where it came from, but like that's like, well, I think it's, I think it's just don't spend money on your kayaking stuff. You can spend money on anything else, but just don't spend money. True. on. And your I mean, kayak. a lot of kayakers are definitely poor. Like that's for sure. No, you're and right. Like, you're right. I don't know. I, I think that there's some ego. I think that there's like, maybe it's just cause it's a smaller sport. Like everybody knows somebody who is sponsored and thinks I deserve that too. Or maybe people know they're one spray skirt yank away from losing that boat forever. <laughs> That's possible too. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know, your bike, you may, you know, you may break something on your bike, but you know, it's not going to float off the mountain away from you. People also complain a lot about how expensive bikes are, but 
I do. I'm a big complainer about that. And you spend so much money on all of that stuff for the bike. It's like, I wonder what the cost per ride is of maintenance on a I bet it's like 40 bucks a ride. I don't know. Man, how much stuff are you breaking, man? Oh, I break a lot of stuff, Lewis. Um, I, yeah, when I first started riding again, I, I was breaking something like every ride, but I had a shitty old bike that that seems like the natural course of things. I don't know, Simon. If anybody has any idea of why boaters are so tight when it comes to spending money on their gear when buying a boat, let us know. I'd be interested to hear some opinions on that one. I just bought a nice new Waka OG that I spent more money on than I've spent on any non-composite kayak ever. Oh. Now, what drew, yeah. you, what drew you to that boat? Um, I Man, I like just really loved the tuna one and it was like such a weird choice for me. Like it's like not like what I would think of as my style. Like if I had like designed a boat from scratch, it wouldn't have like, it, it wouldn't have been that. And then I just like got in that tuna one and I started paddling it and I was like, this thing is so fucking fun. And I just loved that kayak. And I just was not really over it when they stopped being able to make them. And I couldn't quite find that anywhere else. And like this, OG, it like it feels like the tuna one, but just like a little bit better. Nice. And, like it is like it's so sweet, man. I just like I'm so stoked to be battling this, but I don't know what to tell you. Like a little faster feel or what? It's like a little bit faster, like a little bit better glide. I know it's like a pretty big boat, but it doesn't feel that big. Like it feels a little smaller and like less quirky around the knees than the the tuna one does. It's just like it just feels like skiing on a pow day with like 125 underfoot powder skis it's like you just like it just turns like so like gently and like i feel like it it holds a line a little better than the tuna one did but just like that same floaty super easy super high rocker feeling and it's like it's not the boat for like everywhere like i think you really for those boats like you need the right kind of white water for it to like really come to life. Like if you're going to go take it down, like the upper yacht, it would be like going for like a trail ride on your downhill bike or something. Like it's not necessarily the right tool for every job, but like, man, I'm like so stoked on that thing right now. Hmm. Well, do you think, have you ever paddled a Corsica? <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think I, I Yeah, I think I've not, I think I've managed to make it through that era without ever actually paddling a Corsica. Well, Tim Kennedy comes in with another great review. This is on the Corsica, and this is a boat that I spent a lot of time in. I really bonded with. Um, <laughs> I really liked it. So I, I really when liked you this look review. At that, when you look at that boat, it almost has camber. <laughs> Nonsense, dude. It's got a super aggressive rocker profile. It's got rocker in the end, but the water line is like almost camber. Oh, he's got a great review in here. I just love some of his commentary about going after the gore, which is his local run, about and, and just showing up with that thing. And people are like, Whoa, you brought that? Are you gonna paddle that today? It looks huge. <laughs> and then like he's got this commentary in there with whispers aside, what a kook. <laughs> but I went on this I went on this paddling trip when I was uh when I was in law school. My friend, one of my really good friends at school, this girl Lizzie, was dating a uh, a kayaker who lived up in Bellingham at the time. 
And she was like, oh, my boyfriend's going to the Clendenning this weekend. Like they got like one extra spot on the plane. You know, it's like that fly in run outside Whistler. Remember oh, yeah, on that? Yeah. Killer run. And it was, uh, so I show up for this trip and I'm like, yeah, like I'm in, you know, and I'm just like, like some, like, <laughs> like the friend of somebody's girlfriend from law school or something, you know, like I was not, this is three hammer factor days when I was not the same now. And I just, it was broke at a tornado. I had Hello. Uh, hey, hey, Dan, are you there? Yes, sir. Okay, cool. All right. You got Lewis is telling a story here. I just chimed you in on, on there a little premature. Uh, cool, cool. Oh, there he is. All right, let let's hear the rest of your story. So the so you. Oh were, yeah, just the same thing. You know, I'm just like showing up on this trip. Like nobody knows me. We're doing this like fly and run, and I have like a tornado that's like covered in duct tape, and I have those old float bags with the or the the stove floats with like that seal up with the wand that look like they're from like the early '80s. I'm just like somebody's random friend, and I'm like like. Don't worry, guys. Like I assure you, <laughs> yeah, like, I'll be okay. Well, Dan, let me let me get you up to speed here real quick. And the reason I brought you in on this is because we're, we we have a guy, Tim Kennedy. Do you know Tim Kennedy? Yeah, yeah. So Tim has been riding into the Hammer Factor with these old school boat reviews, and he wrote in okay. about the Corsica. And before we moved on to your segment of the show, Dan, I wanted to hear: Did you ever paddle the Corsica? I absolutely did. I actually. Uh... I got a Corsica S. Might have been one of the first boats that I actually got like a deal on. <laughs> um, and it was through Rob Lesser. And he was like, you're my guy. You know, you'll be my little ambassador. You know, I don't know. I was probably like 16. And I went to like one of my first events to pay at Whitewater Rodeo. And this must have been like 80. I don't even know. 80. 485 something like that and i bought a raffle ticket or i got one in the uh in the event which was absolutely a horrible event because i took two strokes into the slalom race broke my paddle like flipped almost swam was just like f this (laughs) i'm over it but uh went to the party and they drew my name for a free boat and it happened to be a Corsica S which I had just gotten from Rob like three days earlier so all of a sudden I had two of them and I was super stoked but yeah the Corsica S is definitely an awesome boat for me I learned how to back surf in it and uh and then I be I befriended Corin and Corin was one of the you know he was like the designer of the Corsica that was like his first boat that he designed <clears throat> for Bill Masters when he was working at Perception. So that was kind of cool because we reminisced a bunch about that. I, I made a lot of like breakthroughs and that was kind of the beginning of my play boating, I guess, was in a course cast. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I love that. Well, like back surfing was cool, you know. <laughs> well, well, Tim, this is a great review. He kind of raves about the old um, Corsica, so check that out in the show notes. But <clears throat> Moving on to our special guest, we have Dan Gavir. Uh, Dan Gavir, um, originally, I believe you're out of Utah. Is that correct? Yep. 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 Dan, Dan has been a professional paddler for, God, 
25, 30 years at this point. Too long. Yeah, Um, yeah, long time. uh, Very few people know, Dan, at one point you were a sponsored mountain biker, and then you were a sponsored snowboarder, and you were a professional kayaker for many years, professional paddleboarder. Kiteboarder. Kiteboarder, and Mm -hmm. you have basically just crushed every kind of adventure sport there is out there. Um. Is there anything I missed from that intro or anything you'd like to fill in? Uh, I mean, I think I just get so obsessed when I find something I really love that I, you know, focus all my time and energy in, into it. So uh, that obsessive compulsive kind of, uh, you know, just desire to want to live it and breathe it every moment really overtakes me. And then I figure out a way to, to turn it into a career. So I've been very, very lucky too, and and blessed to have awesome support from obviously my family and tons of friends, but, you know, nothing has really, you know, stolen my heart, like paddling, like being on the river and being outside, you know, I've always mountain biked, you know, I've always played in the snow, but really there's nothing like being on the river. So I've been super stoked to be on the river on my sub, you know, so it's been a lot of fun. We'll, we'll get into the stand up paddling here in a little bit, but did you get, did when you were young, did you, were you a paddler first or were you on the mountain snowboarding? How did it all, did it kind of all happen at the same time and you just gravitated towards the river? Uh, my dad forced me to do it pretty much put me in the front of a canoe and, uh, started taking me down the green river and he just wanted to go camping with his buddies on the weekends. You know, he was the weekend warrior. So I was his, I was his bowman in the, uh, in the old town pathfinder. He had, uh, rigged up his own skirt system and, you know, hand sewed hula hoops into the cover on the canoe and he actually made with his sewing machine, our own spray skirts that like hooked around the hula hoops that were sewn into the cover <laughs> over the canoe. And when it got to that point, I was like, this is some serious shit, man. Like, <laughs> I don't know if I'm down, you know, we'd come into rapids and he'd be telling me all about how the pillow works. And, you know, it looks like we're going to hit the rock, but really there's this cushion and, you know, we won't really hit the rock and we'd be heading right for rocks. And I'd be screaming like, we're going to hit the rock. We're going to hit the rock. You'd be like, settle down. We've been over this. Just keep paddling, you know? And uh, so really it was my dad, uh, you know, got me into it. And the, the big thing was, was just being outside, being in nature, camping out with his buddies. And, and the canoe was a vehicle for that. And then I think it was a couple years later, I saw a kayak and I was like, okay, that guy's having a lot more fun than I am. I want one of those. Uh, I went away for the summer to visit my mom who was living in Lexington, Kentucky. And when I came back at a brand new dancer sitting on, on the floor, it was like the first year they released the dancer. And that was my first, first kayak. Sick. Nice. And so you, yeah, paddled, was, uh, so you, paddled, you paddled whitewater for a long time, kayaking. Um, you certainly, you know, have a very, a very, you know, a pretty awesome career in that sport. But at some point you jumped on the paddleboard. Now, mm-hmm. what, where, what brought that on and how did that transition happen? 
Well, I had moved to the Columbia River Gorge, bought my first house in Hood River uh, very shortly after the 2002 Gorge Games, um, where I actually did surprisingly well. I think I was second, third place behind EJ. I can't remember. It was like EJ, Ethan Winger, and I were all right in there. Um, And that was like discovering the Gorge, like, oh, my God, this place has awesome everything like there's mountain biking i like it no it's like you know it rains all the time super cold (laughs) but uh i don't know i fell in love with like the white salmon area you know i fell in love with just kind of the small town feel of it and uh i like the fact that you know you could paddle in the winter you know i came from salt lake where everything's frozen in the winter uh, the white water there is is okay, but you have to travel quite a bit. So, um, so yeah, I called up my home. I was working for AT Paddles at the time. You know, I had done a lot of development with AT Paddles from right um, from their inception with Dirk Steinauer and JD Davies, who started the company. And uh, I was kind of telling JD about how I was a little, just a little frustrated with kiteboarding. I had just gone through like three years of just being totally like out of my head for kiteboarding and I was it was springtime it was like this time of the year and I kept like getting off work right at five go down pump up my kite wait for the wind no wind and so uh, I was like well you know I gotta do something can't go all the way home get my mountain bike then like re kind of reset and go do a different sport you know and I was telling him that and I'm like I don't know what to do because I just don't think I can get into flat water kayaking on the Columbia you know and uh, he had just gotten back from Hawaii and uh, he was like dude I think I found your sport this was like a couple weeks later a month later he's like it's like you stand on this big surfboard and you paddle it with like a long canoe paddle kind of thing and uh, he kind of showed me a picture of it we were already making the paddles for AT and doing some stuff with Kealoa and Kealoa was working on basically making a long outrigger paddle, which were the first sub paddles. And so, well, we got the paddle thing dialed. Let's buy, buy some boards. And so I told JD, I'm like, how much let's I'll go to the bank right now, get the money. And I just like gave him the money before I ever even really tried it. I saw one picture of it, you know, some guy surfing in Hawaii. And I was like, I want to do it. And then uh, we bought boards and, that was it. I started paddling around on the Columbia and it was like an hour into it. I was like getting a good workout. I was like, Hey, this feels good. You know, it's a little awkward, but it like the connection with the water when you paddle just felt good. And I liked standing in the, in the vantage point. And then naturally I was like, man, I got to take this on the river and see what it like, just, just to like catch an eddy and just feel the carve standing. You know, I love that feeling in a kayak. What would it feel like standing up, you know, just to like carve an eddy, like, just something totally easy and basic. And, uh, and yeah, like a week later, I took it to the river and totally like slammed my knee and swam more than I'd ever swam in my whole kayak career in like two hours and came back and I was like, this is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) I just am a glutton for abuse like that and the challenge and just, just, I had just like ideas going off in my head about what can make better equipment the techniques, what's the future of the sport, and kind of like kiteboarding and maybe even kayaking. I've always been drawn to new sports too that like 
they're not very well developed. So there's like a lot to think about and like a lot to imagine how the future of the sport will become and the gear and the technique and all that stuff. So kind of just fell on my lap. It was awesome. What year? What, that was 2003, 2000. What did no, you? that was in 2007. That was in 2007. Yep. Okay, yep. so you were you were super early on into that craze. What yeah, year? there was just a few companies starting to make boards at that point, you know. And then what did you see from the sport then? So you you kind of you kind of went full on into this thing. You were like this is what I like and did you ever expect it to just be what it became? Do you, do you have any idea the size of the paddleboard market like how like in the u.s do you have any idea how many boards are sold or how, like a, any kind of number to give us a reference on like we found out from jill pulliam there's about 20, 15 to twenty thousand whitewater kayaks sold in the u.s each year how many how many paddleboards do you think are sold in the u.s each year oh in the u.s i don't know but i i bet it's maybe 750 to a million Holy individual shit. boards yeah <laughs> that is so many boards. It's, it's hundreds of thousands <laughs> yeah. we, it's definitely like, over a half a million so it's like it's big yeah yeah certainly yeah and then and then and it's hard to tell because right now there's a lot of companies that won't even tell us how many boards they're making there's like a few companies that are totally like transparent let's help the sport grow here's what we do and they're mostly like the higher end companies, like the ones I've worked with that kind of focus on the premier end of the sport. But the people that are really like feeding on the, the, the entry level, bottom end, roto molded, super cheap boards, they haven't really released their numbers. So it's like, it's still a bit of a mystery because some of those companies could be selling as much as the rest of the whole industry combined. So oh, wow. there's still oh, like, wow. you know, there's some industry associations, but no one has really like got great metrics or data yet on the sport because it's still so new that I think some of those companies are still a little bit holding their cards to their chest and not really, you know, letting people know the numbers yet. And so you got into the sport and then you ended up as an athlete at Starboard first. How did your transition go to enter on the starboard team? And I believe at one point you were the marketing manager for that brand. Is that correct? <clears throat> well, it actually started with Warner Paddles. Uh, I left uh, AT and was just doing my own thing, shooting some photos and and uh, some video projects I was doing kind of on the side. And... Um, Christy Dobson gave me a call. She had been working at Warner and she said, Hey, they're thinking about doing a stand-up paddle. They kind of need someone to lead the charge. You seem to be the guy that knows what's up. Would you want to take a job here helping us develop some products and be in the sales rep for Hawaii and kind of the Southwest portion of the United States, which included California where it was just blowing up. So I started going to a lot of events and doing grassroots kind of sales and marketing. Uh, and then I was started racing. So I was like, okay, well, might as well show up at the races and try that. And that was painful, you know, flat water racing, fitness based. So that was kind of a new thing, but I was getting a little older and I was pretty stoked because I was competing against a lot of younger guys and having a really good time. And I just love the, 
the camaraderie of it. It was just like kind of the old school rodeo days and racing kayak days. It was a small core little group and everyone was friends and we would, you know, we would trade paint on the water and, and go pass around beers and around the campfire in the afternoon, the evening. So I really liked that part of it, but I started doing well at racing. So I started doing it a lot and uh, I was at the battle of the paddle in 2009 and starboard uh, noticed that I did pretty well. I was top 10 at the first one. I think it was top 15 or something at the second one. And they asked me if I wanted to start paddling some starboards because I was already buying boards from the shaper who was shaping their boards. Okay. So I was just paying him to shape my boards and they were basically the same boards that they were using for development for the production starboards. So um, I got introduced to the, uh, the owner there and that was, you know, uh, that was it. And then I've been on starboard since then till you know, last month. And so, so that was a good little story. And so, and now you're with a new brand. What is that brand and kind of what are their focus? Um, they're fanatic. They have a very similar heritage and background as starboard did because they started in 1981 as a windsurf brand. So they're one of the first companies to actually start making, you know, production, uh, composite windsurf boards. And they started in 1981. Um, you know, all those guys were buddies back then. Uh, all the, all the guys that started these, these windsurf companies, but Fanatic and Starboard are kind of known as like the top two brands in windsurf, you know? So they've been building big boards for a long time. They both build their boards at the Cobra factory in Thailand um, you know, they both kind of keyed into the very first boards with a uh, subsurface wood veneer underneath the deck where you stand. Because a big problem with windsurfing was when you got going 20 miles an hour across the gorge or the open ocean and you weigh 150 pounds or more, your feet are going to push into the foam on the top deck of the board. And after just one ride, you can have heel dents in your board like an inch deep, you know. So they had to put something underneath the deck where you stand so the boards weren't just getting totally crushed and ruined. Um, and so they were, some of the, they were the first two companies to really invent that process. And then to go further uh, was to basically figure out how to build these huge surfboards in a production style factory and that happened to be with the owner that started the cobra factory which has become a pretty massive composite engineering and production facility in thailand okay all right very cool and then and so what are you doing with those guys so i'm the international team guy for whitewater and then i'm going to be doing sales for all of north america so they have really been established in Europe and Asia and pretty much all other areas of the world except for North America. And so they've just kind of been waiting to get all their everything lined up. They've been doing very well in, in Europe and everywhere else. So they wanted to start, you know, really ramping up sales in North America. Um, when I worked with Starboard, they use a third-party distributor called Trident. Mm-hmm. Um, however, here I'm working with boards and more. So they're like the umbrella company, um, kind of like Confluences. 
but they're based in Germany. And then we're like the USA agency for that umbrella company called Boards and More. So under Boards and More, you've got um, Fanatic Windsurfing, Fanatic Stand-Up Paddle. You've also got North Sails, which makes all the sails for sailboarding. And then you've got North Kiteboarding, which is one of the biggest kiteboarding brands in the world. Um, so I'm in the office with 15 other people uh, with those brands. And also in this office and owned by Boards and More is Aquaglide. So that's a whole nother big company I'm sure you guys are familiar with that they they do all the floatables and inflatable stuff. They're really into those inflatable play parks and they're doing some in IKs and stuff like that. Um, but we're all in this USA office together, which is located in White Salmon. Okay. So, uh, yeah, so they offered me a great job and uh, some opportunities to work with the International Fanatic brand on some product development. So for sure, I'll be spearheading some new whitewater products. And as of about, I think about five or six years ago, they started another brand that features accessories called Ion, which does wetsuits, harnesses, all kinds of booties and apparel. And as of 2000, well, as as of 2012, they got into bikes. So they're doing bike shoes, bike pads, um, that kind of stuff. And my kind of my dream is to figure out a really cool interface between the board and the shoes and how you stand on the board. And, you know, I've never been a big fan of foot straps. You know, we've tried some foot straps kind of on the river. And, like, if you get your foot caught in that thing, you're going to, like, break your ankle right off, you know? So it's, you know, and you don't want hooks on the board. Sometimes you have to crawl back onto the board. So you don't want things sticking up. And so hopefully, you know, in the future of it, you know, there'll be some type of maybe interface that I'm hoping for in the future that's really really innovative. So, you know, that's where I really have a lot of interest is the innovation part and what's going to make whitewater more fun, higher performance, and easier to get into. So, so you're the guy for me to put my sponsorship sponsorship application into, Dan. Exactly. So dude, <laughs> yeah, we don't have a team here either for USA. There's really only like two or three of us right now. Well, so. I'm your Asheville guy. You got him on the on okay. the line right now. Done. You're on. <laughs> Dan, where uh, where would you say like the state of the art is right now on whitewater stuff? Like, I don't know. I was just thinking about the day going out one day with you and Isaac, and we went out and ran the middle white salmon here at like a pretty good level. I remember watching Dan and being. Yeah, that was a high saying, level. It did I not, remember that day. I would say it did not look very fun to me. It looked like very impressive and difficult. <laughs> I was like, yeah. that looks hard. I'm impressed, but like, I don't think I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, I mean, I think for like, me, my my wheelhouse is is river running. You yeah, know, it's like, like river running, difficult whitewater. You know, you look at some of the guys in Colorado, like uh, Miles Harvey, you know, Mike Tavares, Spencer Lacey, a lot of the bad fish guys. And they're really starting to master um, river surfing on an SUP. I mean, those guys are all, don't get me wrong, they're some of the best river runners as well. But there's those are the kind of the two you know, niches within the niche is, is the surfing and the river running. And we just don't have the standing waves here 
you know, in the gorge, like they have access to in Colorado or even Bend and Boise and looks like, um, you know, they're adding more of those play parks and it'd be nice if we had one here, but, uh, you know, I don't have the luxury of just getting off work or going down the street and riding an awesome wave all day. So it's really, you know, point A to point B river running. And so it gets into just, you know, being able to catch eddies really well. You know, I can catch almost any eddy I want to now on the river on my sub, either uh, goofy foot or regular foot. So that's one one thing I've really been trying to master is being able to ride, switch, or regular, um, just about the same. I mean, I'm still pretty favored on left foot forward regular stance, but uh, being ambidextrous like that on the river can really help a lot. And so what, like, like, what do you, like, what kind of whitewater are you running now? Like, what's your sort of like top of your comfort zone these days? Like, can you I mean, stick, can you stick Hewsome yet? No, I can't stick Hewsome yet. No one's stuck Hewsome yet that I know <laughs> of. Uh, Hewsome's a tough one because it's just not a straight drop. Um, totally. Kobe back and a couple other guys um, here in Oregon have been trying some little bit bigger drops like like Spencer, I think those guys have hit like some 12, 15 foot drops that are pretty straightforward, you know, which is, which is pretty respectable. Um, I saw a video of a guy going around sticking a uh, wonder falls on the big Sandy. I thought it was pretty impressive. Yeah. Stuff like that is totally doable. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, I've tried bigger drops just for the fun of it. See what it'd be like, but, uh, you know, I really feel like where the sport is uh, going to get the most amount of new people is really for their their local runs. You know, their backyard uh, play park, the the river that's just down the street that they can go just run after work. It's non threatening, and maybe you know, maybe kayaking isn't their cup of tea, but they want to get on the river. I see that a lot for the women. The women are stoked because they don't have to learn how to roll. They're not stuck in a kayak. That's blah, how blah, blah, blah. that's how Chelsea is. She's she'll get you on know. a paddleboard any day of the week, but if I try to get her to go kayaking, she's out. Yeah, you know, you don't have to worry about the roll and being upside down and smashing your pretty face on the rock. You know, <laughs> guys are like, not uh, so I can hear the hate now. I gotta, <laughs> I gotta stop this, dude. We gotta go a different direction. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so some, I have to. Yeah, there are some hardcore women paddlers out there we shouldn't go that route too hard okay <laughs> yeah i mean there are and there's some actually there's some hardcore paddlers in the gorge that like to sup too so sure. um and any paddler that's good at kayaking will be good at stand-up paddling pretty quick because they understand the river mm-hmm. you put like a river surf you put like an ocean surfer on a paddleboard in the river versus like a seasoned kayaker on a paddleboard in the river the kayaker will always do better because they just understand the flow of the river and which way, you know, they're not trying to turn against the, the eddies. They're not trying to like, they're not edging the wrong way. You know, there's a lot of things that are very intuitive in the river. If you come from a surfing background and it takes a little bit longer to get adjusted to those. Um, And that's where we're seeing most of the crossover honestly is coming from from former 
river, you know, familiar people that, that are already comfortable in the river. And they're like, oh, cool. Same river, different, different toy, you yeah. know? So, you know, for me, I mean, my pinnacle around here is the middle white. Like, that's just, I love that river, you know? I love running Maytag. Um, I haven't really gone upstream from there very far yet. Uh, there's some other stuff around here I'm sure I could explore, but I've been kind of lazy. <laughs> Last year, I did travel to France and do a competition, and then I went to Slovenia and paddled the Socha um, and did some of the classic sections there. It was it was awesome. So uh, I really love paddling clear water rivers, and uh, I'm always exploring for those around the world. So. I went through uh, <clears throat> BV last summer, and uh, I we stopped along the drive. We were actually meeting some some family in Telluride, and I had my kayak with me, and I got out and went there at, at the play park there at BV. Um, just did one lap, cruised down, and there were about a dozen paddleboarders there and one kayaker. <laughs> Do you see this trend? continuing and do you see do you think there's going to be a point to where we're going to see more people on paddle boards out on the local class two three runs in the parks than there are than we see kayakers i think in certain areas yeah maybe you know like where you're at maybe around here a little bit in certain places like the lower white you know because most of the kayakers that move here already know how to kayak so they're they're more focused on the middle the little white and stuff like that. Um, but you know, it's still pretty much of a niche, this, this part of the sport. Uh, I think you're seeing more common that type of a scene in certain parts of the ocean where, uh, certain breaks in certain areas are actually getting very popular with stand up paddling. And now you have the whole foil thing coming into play. Uh, so people wanting to foil board and it looks like, you know, that, uh, using the paddle to get the board up onto the foil is, uh, is a great method. So I have no idea where that's going to go. Um, but certainly the foil boarding whole part of all board sports in the water right now is, is pretty much the, the new focus, the new kind of rage on the water. So, you know, we're doing it here. Uh, doing downwinders on the foil boards and it's just amazing being up on the foil and getting you know two or three minute long foil rides for a mile plus and hitting speeds of like 15 miles an hour it's pretty sick what about um yeah, what about there's a lot of there, there's how do you see like in whitewater kayaking, there's uh, there's kind of becoming some established things that are going on on the rivers. You've got the Green Race and the North Fork Championship and these various events that are have become iconic and they're starting to be like a tour. Is there anything like that happening in the um, whitewater SUP world? I know that we have the Battle of the Broad here, which is really gaining some traction. Do you think there's going mm-hmm. to be... You think there's going to be that kind of thing, and is it going to be races or is it going to be surfing? Where do you see that going? Well, there's already that with some flat water racing for sure. You know, I think with white water, it's hard to say. There's not really only Colorado has that type of a series that's like set up to crown like a champ 
and after several events for whitewater that I know of. I think in France, they just started uh, a whitewater sup series. So that's pretty cool. So it seems like the USA and France and then Germany are kind of leading the charge there. But until one of uh, the old dogs like myself or maybe Charlie MacArthur or, or Mikey T or someone or even Mikey Harvey wants to just start organizing events for the sake of creating that type of a series, uh, you know, I, I don't know. I haven't seen a lot of effort made towards that yet. There's still a lot of dissension just within the whole sport on, you know, uh, instructional organizations and race organizations. And now you have, what is it, the ICF fighting with uh, um, the ISA for being the governing body of SUP to see who's going to take it to the Olympics. We covered on you that. Know. We covered that on the show here. Yeah. So, you know, it's the same as like snowboarding started. It's everything starts that way and then they, you know, kind of get their shit together and figure it out. But, uh, you know, right now I'm still interested in just creating the best event I can at the, at the mountain games. So the GoPro mountain games was the first event that I know of that had a cash purse for whitewater SUP. And that was the event that, uh, that I helped organize and, and kind of conduct. And then we turned it into two events and uh, we get pretty good international presence there. And uh, I'm pretty proud that we've had that event going, I think, since 2010, um, with a couple years that we had to cancel because of either high or low water. But, um, you know, that's been a pretty consistent event, which consists of just that downriver race and then the, uh, the SUP cross, um, which is something that I think we were one of the first you know, first events to actually feature the sub cross event. Mm-hmm. Is that all on the section in town there, or is that down on the the Eagle? No, it's right in Gore Creek. Cool. Yeah, it's all right on Gore Creek, right in downtown. And sometimes we have you know three, four thousand spectators for that. Like a lot of times, we'll have as many spectators for the sub cross events as they have for eight ball and freestyle kayak. So visually. The optics of it are awesome. People love watching it. And so, see the uh, sub cross being pretty entertaining to watch. <laughs> it's pretty sick too. When you get down to the last round, and it's like Mikey T, you know, and then you got little Miles Harvey, Dane Jackson, you know, you, you you get like a whole variety of folks in there, and it's rad. They come down and they make all the gates perfect, catch all the eddies. There's contact sometimes you know, someone eats it and it's just kind of like got that X games feel where it's like, you're either winning or you're swimming, you know, and, uh, people love that, you know, it's, there's no clock. There's no figuring out who did the raddest phonics monkey with a big bonus, you know, like people can't figure that out by watching it, but they watch sub. Yeah. I, I, and now I've been announcing it for 20 years. I still have a hard time, but it's, uh, but this is very visual and people love watching it, you know. And, so. and I believe there's just as many people in the paddleboard class as there is in the kayak class in the events there at, yeah. the, at the Mountain Games at yeah. this point. In the sprint, we often get 60-plus people in the downriver sprint. And, I mean, we get a ton of kayakers that cross over. 
we had, you know, we have a lot of the women will cross over from their kayaks and try it. And, uh, obviously a lot of the guys are doing it and, uh, it's really cool to see, you know, Nick Troutman and, uh, and Dane and, um, you know, we had Martina Wegman will jump on a board and she's really good, you know, cause they just got that feel of the river. And if maybe they've done a little snowboarding or whatever, they can jump on a board and actually do pretty well. And considering when you fall off, all you got to do is jump back on the board and keep going. You know, you're not like in a kayak where you're, you know, swimming your shit to shore and your race is over. The, the, bow, so, the bow weighs a thousand pounds as soon as you pop yeah. out of it. Um, stepping away from that, I want to get into a little more Dan Gavir here. Um, a couple things. What of all the time, and you can think about this for a second, all the time you've been doing all the sports activities that you've done, what is your, what, what would you say your crowning moment is? What, what sticks out the most as, as the most satisfying thing? Uh, I think probably finishing second place in the whole ride event at the 93 World Championships on the Ocoee. Just, you know, total dark horse in a prion hurricane. I was the first guy to go. A lot of people... Uh, thought I should have won the prelims. Um, and I didn't even make the finals. Like they, they selected the top 10, but at the, at the very first announcement, I was like 11th place, but a lot of people had like, I didn't contest it, but a lot of people contested it because they thought I had one of the best rides of the day, but they didn't know what they were going to see because I went first. And so I don't know, somehow they like, added me in there as the 11th place guy. And then, uh, and then I basically made it in a head to head consecutively through head to head rounds until the very last round when EJ beat me in a head to head single ride battle. So that was probably, you know, that was just me young, just like just went for it and made it. And I was pretty stoked at that. So I was at that event. I remember that. Yeah, that what, was pretty amazing. What about flipping the coin? What about the lowest moment? What about what, when was the time you were like, "I'm done. I got to get a computer job or something." <laughs> Probably <laughs> towards the end of uh, the whole Confluence Wave Sport gig there, and my back had kind of taken some big hits, and I had been driving around for ten years and motorhomes and RVs and then we had the Chevy sponsorships and all that stuff and I was still trying to be competitor in the freestyle bit and uh and just having to deal with the the pain in my back and just the waning desire to be at competitions um and that's about when I decided to shift gears and start kiteboarding a lot more and that's when I discovered that so that was a good distraction but that was that was probably it when I kind of loaded up my stuff and drove away from my job at Confluence and Wave Sport and decided to move to the Gorge. Let me ask you this. For our listeners who are who are, are trying to make their way and become a sponsored kayaker or paddleboarder or whatever it is, what what advice would you give them to getting sponsorships? And, and, and I mean, come on, you've had a pretty magical career, Dan. I mean, you have like... <clears throat> 
lifestyle hard for 20 years and made a living off of it. Like, you know, how, how can someone else do this? What advice would you give to someone else you wanted to take your path? Oh man. I mean, it's just following your passion, just making sure it's like something you want to do day in and day out. Uh, for me, I looked at like some of my role models when I was in college in Missoula and running my snowboard shop there. I had started a little shop there called board of Missoula and uh, at one point, I wanted to be a pro snowboarder, so I was really watching what Craig Kelly was doing. And yeah, sure, he was winning events and doing pretty well in the event scene. But what really cast him into like the limelight in the sport was videos, you know, watching him on video. And so I was like, you know what, if I want to take this as far as I can take it, I need to become a good photographer. I need to become a good videographer. And that's when I um, partnered up with Polar Bear Productions and we produced Paddle Frenzy. I was already working with him on some snowboard snowboard films. He was filming me snowboarding because he was a Montana guy and we were doing some cool stuff in the snowboard world. And I said, hey man, I want to do like the most badass kayak flick that looks like some of these snowboarding flicks where they're going all around the world, lifestyle, no competition, like no competition. It's all just like rolling with your friends, going to cool rivers, having fun, living the dream out of the van, wherever. And that's when we created Paddle Frenzy, which is right after I had made the team in 93 at Bob's Hole. And... Corin was there, like bought a one-way ticket and was like there with his mohawk and his thumb in the air. And I'm like, dude, jump in. Let's go freaking paddling. I took them all into Idaho and we paddled like, uh, you know, we did like the North Fork and we did like Coyote Falls on the Clearwater and filmed all that stuff with 16 millimeter cameras. And I called my guy up in Montana and he met us up and uh, yeah, and that's when we did Paddle Frenzy. And then from that uh, we got hooked up with Cavu and then Timex. And then, you know, we we're writing the script for the ultimate, the ultimate movie, which ended up becoming Paddle Quest. And that was like another big kind of breakthrough for me. And, and really proud moment was when we released Paddle Quest and at uh, Outdoor Retailer. I think that was Outdoor Retailer 95 or 96 in Reno to about uh, 1,200 people in the, in the audience there. And we played it on the big screen and uh, people were stoked. And we had the whole corporate Timex uh, crew there. So we were kind of under the spotlight because they had given us a whole bunch of money and we had gone to Chile and we blew some cash having fun there and, and kayaking, you know, all over Chile. But uh, I thought the video came out great. And we did the whole thing in 16 mil some some high eight stuff and it was it was a lot of work for 18 months but uh we made it happen i ended up having to edit the first round out of the gate with no experience on an avid that was like basically going sad mac every you know every three days these movies if we can find them on the internet in the show notes for anybody who's listening who's not familiar with this body of work like those guys <laughs> up real well yeah, yeah. You watch Paddle Quest or Cavity Day. I I defy you to watch any of those movies and not immediately want to go kayaking. Yeah, <laughs> and then yeah, and then Cavity Day was actually born from 
the outtakes of Paddle Quest because Delta lost my bag with my Super 8 camera, which I had rented, um, and about 60 rolls of film. I went to Europe and shot for like a month. And it was supposed to go on Paddle Quest, but Delta lost my bag. And I just jammed the camera and all the film in there and just checked it in. Like, I had so much gear. I could. I was just like, oh, I'll just wrap the camera in a spray skirt and stuff the film in there. And they're like, yeah, your bag is gone, dude. We think it went to Japan, but it was like, oh. they didn't find it for five weeks. And oh. so we had, to, we had to edit and put out oh. Paddle Quest in like three weeks after that. So then I got all the footage back and we're like, we got to do another video. And it's, you know, and that's when we came up with Cavu day and, uh, you know, I was hanging out with Brendan Guth a lot back then from Missoula. Um, and so he was kind of one of the, the main characters in there that, uh, you know, we did the whole Scrabble kind of theme to the whole movie. And uh, I really liked how Cavu Day came out, at, at least creatively. I thought that was a really fun project to work on as well. It and it means a lot to me because, obviously, Brennan passed away in Chile on one of the rivers that we paddled on. So, you know, that movie means a lot to me, and it's, it's pretty cool. And for those of you out there that don't know, these are all videos that were put out on VHS tapes. Oh, yeah. Killer, <laughs> so, uh, killer movies. Yeah. Really good movies. Yeah. I still have all of them in uh, original shrink wrapped. I have one copy still like brand new shrink wrapped in the package uh, in my archives. So. Nice. And then after that was Dashboard Burrito, and the list goes on and on and on. Yeah. Um, well, kill it. All right. So the advice from Dan Gavir is follow your passion and figure out the media game. Figure out the media game. I mean, I look now at the top paddlers in kayaking. And almost all of them are like just as good at kayaking as they are at producing media. You know, you look at people like Rush Sturgis, you look at Evan Garcia, um, a lot of the cats out there, Rafa um, is, is putting out some pretty cool, strong imagery and stuff. And now it's a different medium with Instagram and GoPro and 360 cameras and whatever, but it's still the same game, you know? You, you're not going to be anyone if no one knows who you are. <laughs> you know, and, and the only way to get there is if people can see you in print or see you on the internet or see you in a movie. And back when I was doing it, there was no internet. There were no GoPro cameras, you know? So this was all like videotaped at rodeo parties where basically that was like our internet. You know what I mean? We didn't have cell phones either back then. It was like, Okay, dude, I'm going to meet you in, on the Food Le Foo at the put-in, you know, for the upper on January 21st. We'll be there. <laughs> I'm not sure where we're camping, you know, but we'll be in one of the vans with a bunch of kayaks on it off the side of the road, you know. So uh, that was kind of fun, you know, hanging out back then. It was a lot, uh, it's a lot more grassroots um, as far as communicating and and uh, recording all those memories on film was a lot more uh, complicated and technical than it is now. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, we're kind of running out of time here, Dan, but I got a lot of other things I want to ask you. I, one thing I just want to plant in your head. Tell me if you think this will be cool. Okay. What if you got like a – what if you put together what – are, what, what are the links like the longer river running whitewater boards that you guys are making? 11 and a half feet, 11 feet? 
Yeah, 11 foot. I mean, we have a, a race rule now. It's like 11 foot. This year at GoPro, we actually went to 11 foot inflatable only boards. Yeah, that's what we did. Just, that's what we did at the Battle yeah. Abroad last year. Yeah. Do you, do you think it would be a fun competition to get like three or four top SUP guys and three or four top whitewater kayaking guys and do like a series of races? Like on class Absolutely. two, three. I would love to do that, like just like like pit some kayakers against some paddleboarders. Yeah, it'd be cool to also do. I thought like like waterman style races where you have to like paddleboard half the river and then kayak the other half. Yeah, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Like paddleboard yeah. the the the. I mean, the white salmon would be so perfect. You just start at the top. You got to paddle down green truss. You got to you got to stand up paddle the middle and the lower, and you jump back in a kayak and paddle the lower part or something you know it'd be sick because certain exactly. people would be way faster at kayaking other guys would be way faster and at the finish line it'd probably be pretty close you know that, that's exactly what i was talking about something like that yeah um that'd be pretty cool <clears throat> lewis do you have anything else we're an hour and a half my man no that's, that's good man that's good catching up with you i saw you uh i saw your boat hanging off the side of the, the sprinter the other day are you doing any kayaking these days I have been, yeah, I've been kayaking a bunch, so I'm ready to get back out on the little white. So I've been kayaking a bunch, brushing up on my roll. You know, I got it going pretty good, so I'm stoked. <laughs> let's, let's go kayaking, man. I remember so, my, yeah. my, my first day running a little white when I moved to the Northwest probably 10 years ago. And we were out scouting Spirit, and you rolled up and just sent Spirit, like, back when it was not when everybody was running Spirit every lap. <laughs> Like, you no were like, scouting I, too. Like I, uh, I hate scouting that thing. <laughs> like I hadn't been in a kayak in like five years and just got really fired up and went kayaking today. And I was like, it was... <laughs> that's awesome. Well, yeah, Dan, I want to get out there. Well, Dan, being that we got you, we're going to go on to our final segment of the show here. We call it rants and raves. It's where we go on okay. a rant or we go on a rave about anything that's got you fired up or maybe got you bumming. So whatever's got you stoked um, or bumming, and Lewis normally is not prepared for this, but I'm going to throw it to him because I'm sure he's ready on this show. Lewis, what is your <laughs> rant or rave? I'm going to rant about the use of the word sharing to describe posting shit on social media. Okay. Because you're sharing, when you're posting something on social media, you're not usually sharing. Like to me, sharing is like taking my pie and like giving a piece of the pie that I could be eating to you. Like that's sharing. It's like taking something of mine that I could retain to myself and giving it to my friend. Social media sharing is like stealing somebody else's attention. It's stealing a little bit of the soul from the place that you took that picture or whatever. And I certainly have a couple of places in mind around here right now that could use for a little less social media attention. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. And I, just I, I'm tired of that expression. You're not you're not sharing anything. You're something stealing else. it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I like that one. How about you, Dan? Do you got anything you'd like to rant on or rave about? Uh, I'm gonna rant to Mother Nature about the lack of snow in certain parts of the U.S., especially the Rockies, and um, rant at uh all the people that insist on having a green freaking lawn and wasting water that we could be drinking or paddling on 
um, especially in years like this when we're going to be at a severe shortage in some areas of the world. We're lucky here in the Northwest. We usually don't have these types of problems normally. Um, crossing my fingers because you don't know what can happen now. But, uh, you know, that's my rant. Yeah. Just, you know, if there's no water to drink, then like you don't need to water your lawn, you know, or waste water. You know, it's a precious resource. And we'll we'll soon find out that it's worth a lot more than oil. So you need to, you know, put a lot of uh, thought into that and making it available for for future generations. Here, here, man. Oh, I'm gonna rave about single speed mountain biking. You guys ever been single speeding? Only when, like, I broke my chain and I had to, like, <laughs> re-rig it. And it was so short that I was just stuck in one gear. And I was like, okay, this sucks. What about you? Lewis, you put your, you clamped your head I, on your I forehead. Had I had a track bike that was my commuter for a long time. But it's pretty silly. Dude, I jumped <laughs> on a good Reeb steel frame single speed bike it had like this sick it didn't have a chain it had like that belt drive you guys seen that whatever yeah Dude, i took that thing out in the first like 10 minutes i was just like you lewis i was like oh god what is this you know oh, i can't you know whatever but did soon as soon as i got the feel it was like i don't know it was like kayaking without a life jacket <laughs> I don't know if that i don't know if that's a good thing to say in this day and age but anyway guy, it was sick my one of, my without a paddle. one of my colleagues <laughs> at Outdoor Alliance, this guy, Tom Flynn, who left to go to law school a few years ago, was a uh, savage single-speed mountain biker. He was the single-speed marathon national champion, and he rode single-speed 29er rigid fork, just like fully rigid bike. Ooh, I didn't and do that. He was, like, he was just savage operator i like went and rode with him one day in the like boulder white clouds up in idaho and he just like crushed i mean i was on like a six inch enduro bike and like we were yeah. like like i could we were like the same on the downs and he was you know just grinding into the ground on the climb <laughs> yeah savage. this this bike had like five inches of travel up front but man it was like so quiet didn't make a noise and like once i started to figure it out i was like oh i get this you know like it was there was something to it. So my rave is about single speed mountain biking. First time. First time oh, I've ever done it. There's a lot of people around here ranting about electric mountain bikes. So oh, that's yeah. That's actually. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. And Strava and all that stuff. So, you know, it's pretty <laughs> hardcore mountain bike crew around here. <laughs> and they're all chasing Strava records. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan, for, thanks for coming on the Hammer Factor. And I'll get that sponsorship thanks, application guys. over to you. Please do. <laughs> Get the ball rolling. It'll be on. <laughs> All, All right. right. Let's go kayaking. All right. Thanks, you guys. Have a good one.